Hello and welcome to USA Today's For The Win podcast where we discuss the human side of sports. My name is Luke Kernin and I've got a very special guest today. He's a founding father of Major League Soccer, a former president of DC United and now CEO of US Club Soccer, Kevin Payne. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Hi Luke, how are you? I'm doing well, I'm doing well. Um, so for some of our listeners who uh, might not be uh, super familiar with the sort of st- uh, the structure of U.S. Uh, soccer. U- U.S. club soccer is a prominent member of the U.S. Soccer Federation. But um, I'd love for you to just explain more about how the current system in the United States is structured. I'm sorry, Luke. Okay. You broke up a little bit, but I, I think what you were asking was if I could explain how the current system works. Yeah, exactly. I, I can. Re- I'll rephrase the question too. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I was just curious if you could um, explain to some of our listeners who might not be familiar um, how the current system in the U.S. is structured. Yeah. Youth soccer in the United States um, developed in the absence of uh, a national professional league. So it actually achieved its um, spectacular growth in the period of time between the demise of the North American Soccer League and the uh, rise of Major League Soccer. So, differently than it has in most other countries where there was certainly quite a bit more of a top-down focus. Um, Additionally, I think here in the United States, college soccer, um, which accounts for you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scholarship opportunities each year for male and female players. Um, the situation here is different than it is in much of the rest of the world. Um, there are a number of uh, youth organizations that exist within the United States Soccer Federation. Uh, the USOC ruled along Soccer Federation had to be open. To, um, to basically any potential member. It, it couldn't uh, discriminate against members. It couldn't exclude members. Um, so, you know, we are a continent, obviously. We're a country of nearly 330 million people, and we have a very broad and diverse base of soccer at the youth level. Uh, a developing... Um, pathway that is a little more clear to people. Uh, I think generally speaking, uh, people understand that the development academy programs on the boys are uh, the highest level in the boys development pyramid. Uh, Actually, the MLS development academies are the highest level. Um, The other development academies are uh, kind of a um, and I think below that is the um, the National Premier Leagues and the ECNL Boys Conferences that U.S. Club Soccer and ECNL operate as part. And uh, I think generally, then the level below that is kind of the uh, the cup um, competitions, which are operated by the state associations and USYS and by our organizations. So I think more and more there is a little bit of an understandable um, pattern, if you will, 
Um, but again, the there's there's a lot more youth players and families in this country, I believe, who are looking for a specific experience than there might be in another country that um, where the only real um, you know uh, profitable outcome is uh, a professional contract. Yeah, and and I was especially curious. So I'm from England originally, and um, you know, people talk a lot about the youth system in England, where they they figure out they they try to talk about what's wrong, what's right with it. But for better or for worse, there is a system in place, right? Like when you're very young, you can sign a professional contract, and then you sort of follow through this system until you're maybe one day good enough to play for a for a team. Um, it strikes me that it must be so difficult from a U.S. perspective because in terms of soccer, it's so it's so young. You're almost trying to create this pipeline from scratch. Um, you're trying to figure out what would work best for this country because not everybody can adopt the German model or the English model of youth development. Um, it just strikes me as such a big undertaking. Well, it is a big undertaking, and, and I can I can guarantee you that the will not work here. The English model will not work here. The Argentine model will not work here. There are things we can learn from all of those models. Um, but we have our own very specifics. Uh, you know, I just mentioned three great soccer nations. Well, you know, our country is um, nearly twice as large as all three of those countries combined. Yeah. The, just the scale of the United States pre- presents different challenges. Um, we have, there's enormous differences in the soccer culture in, say, New Jersey, Southern California. Um, and so not having a strictly top-down approach is almost inevitable in this country. Um, I do think there are in, uh, themes, if you will, that we that everybody should be buying into. Um, obviously, after, after the U.S. team missed the um, missed the World Cup, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of anger, but a lot of people wondering, like, where does the how does the U.S. recover from this so it never happens again? You know, there was a lot of criticism, for example, for the um, quote unquote pay to play approach in U.S. soccer. I mean, what what, what did you make of all this? Um, this not criticism, but sort of questioning from fans and players um, in the aftermath of that Trinidad and Tobago result. Well, I mean, I, first, first of all, I think it was criticism. Yeah, you know, um, it, it was certainly far more than questioning. Um, yeah. And and I think it's it's healthy and it's natural to have that kind of reaction when your country uh, suffers a you know a disappointment of this magnitude. I think all of us should be looking at um, everything that we do. I do think that a lot of hysteria hmm. and was, was really not very useful. Um, and I think that the notion that we want to blame the pay-for-play for model is just silly. I think it's being fomented by people that don't understand uh, how things work and haven't taken the time to really think about it sufficiently. 
Um, it, it, you know, if pay-for-play prevents talent, otherwise talented players from playing, then that's a problem. Yeah. Um, I don't actually think that that is happening that often. Uh, that many of the um, the youth soccer clubs that uh, people criticize for the pay to play model actually work very hard to provide scholarship opportunities to those kids who can't otherwise uh, afford to play. The bigger problem is how do we cast a wider net? It's not only an economic issue. Um, there are lots of issues relating we are not able to attract, let's say, more recent immigrant um, uh, members of our community into the U.S. soccer family. So whether they're Asian or African or, in particular, well, you know, the United States Soccer Federation and soccer generally is not the only institution in the United States that's having a hard time uh, convincing those people to... Uh, there's a lot of fear and suspicion out there right now. Um, and you can't really blame uh, a lot of these folks for being hesitant to sign up for something and provide a bunch of in themselves. Um, so it, it's a very, you know, this is a complex issue and it, it does, it, it does us a disservice when people act like there's a one, you know, a one shot and just do this. Everything will be fine. Yeah. That has been a problem with U.S. soccer as long as I've been involved, which is over 30 years at the administrative level. Um, we keep looking for, and it's, it, it, there isn't a single solution. We have to do a lot of things better. Yeah, because like you said, you know, the U.S., it, it, just in terms of sheer land area, um, you, you couldn't really adopt the England model in America because everything's so much further apart you know in order to shift that burden entirely onto professional clubs it seems like it would be incredible impossible like not just incredibly difficult support for the for the win podcast comes from our friends at rocket mortgage by quicken loans they understand that home plays a big role in your life and family that's why they created rocket mortgage rocket mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. It's simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. It's convenient. Our trusted partners allow you to share your financial information with Rocket Mortgage at the touch of a button. And in addition to getting a real mortgage approval in minutes, you can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you're getting the right solution for you. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com FTW. That's rocketmortgage.com FTW. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Yeah, so I was just wondering whether I'm like right in this, but my gut reaction has always been that one of the areas where the U.S., uh, where U.S. soccer, generally speaking, um, would really benefit from is, or, or really is hindered by, 
is is just a lack of um, sort of high quality coaches across the country. That it's just it's just really hard for a lot of people um, because soccer again is is a very new sport in the whole scheme of things relative to baseball or something. That um, it's just it's just tough to find like high school coaches who can really help players progress. Um, and it's just hard for a lot of people to get the coaches that they need. Is that an accurate assessment? Again, I'm coming from a slight point of ignorance here because I'm English. I don't really know. Um, but, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that idea. No, I think that's, um, that's very perceptive actually. Um, that have done a good job of reimagining their player development process have begun with the premise that if they want better players, they need better coaches. And then they've tackled the process of providing more uh, instructional and continuing educational opportunities for their coaches. And, uh, you know, that, that was certainly a critical part of France's resurgence. And then after them, Spain and Belgium, you know, maybe the most traumatic example is actually Iceland. Yeah. Um, listen, I think now England's had a great summer. Um, you know, England now has won the, the U20s, which is that, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, that suggests that they're, they are finally doing some things right. But England has had a real problem with this, too, with the same thing. And, you know, and that's a country with embedded in the culture um it, it takes a it's it needs to be a pretty purposeful process in my opinion to scale up the number of coaches you need we have lots of good coaches, nearly enough yeah. um, spain for instance has uh something over eight thousand um a licensed coaches or above a-license coaches or above. There's no chance that we have 8,000 people in this country who are the equivalent of a UEFA A-license. Yeah. You know, we probably have, we probably have a couple of hundred. Um, you know, and, and that's been one of England's problems. They do not have enough. They are, they are, you know, far less than that. I, if last I saw, last number I saw was less than a thousand coaches in England with that level of licensure. Yeah. It's very high. Um, Iceland has the highest per, per player uh, ratio of coaches, of licensed coaches in the world. And that's one of the reasons why Iceland is, is performing uh, beyond what they should be capable of, given the size of their country. Um, you know, we probably have several hundred cities in this country that are bigger than the population of Iceland. Yeah, yeah. We, I think that we need to undertake a far more aggressive and focused program to um, increase the number of coaches, um, you know, a higher licensing level. And that, I think we're doing a, a pretty good job of, of making our licenses uh, uh, more rigorous. We're making the process and, you know, somebody who now who has a new A license in the United States really has put the work in. But I think that we need to be scaling this uh, much more aggressively. I think the Federation needs to spend a lot more money at every level, from the A level all the way down to the lower entry levels. Um, we need more instructors. 
uh, we're, we have political issues that get in the way of that sometimes. Um, higher levels, I think we just need to look at this as almost an emergency, um, kind of a crash approach for several years to both in, create uh, more coaches with also create more people capable of instructing so that we can begin to scale it very quickly. Right now, there's a very small number of individuals who are qualified to coach or to instruct licenses in the United States. And I, I think that needs to change. Absolutely. I was fascinating. So, and, and so my, my final question is, looking ahead, I mean, again, from an outsider's point of view, it seems like America, had, obviously, it had the Clint Dempsey generation, but coming through the ranks, it seems like there are some bright young players um, that are really impressing. Weston McKenney's one who stands out, Emerson Heidman's another at Bournemouth, who both, I believe, came through the FC Dallas Academy. But, I mean, looking forward, should fans be doom and gloom? Should they be happy? This, the, missing the World Cup is obviously a setback. But what do you see... Um, as, a, as a vet inside the sort of administration of the game, when you look ahead, what do you think? Well, I do, I do think that one opportunity, I mean, it's a painful way to get this opportunity, but one opportunity that um, the Federation finds itself with now is it's not playing in the World Cup. Um, it actually can seek out a pretty aggressive schedule of, of friendly matches against good opponents, and play a lot of those younger players yeah. who cycle would, ha would have a fairly difficult time getting on the field for the full national team when all you're worried about is results. Um, but given the fact that, you know, for a couple, our results don't really matter, um, there's no reason why we shouldn't give these young players their head. You know, we, we do have a pretty exciting group of players under the age of 23, uh, many of whom have played together on, on youth national teams. And, you know, we should be focused on cultivating that group. For me, you know, just tactically, I think the Federation ensuring that we develop a group that qualifies for the next Olympics, which we've missed um, two cycles in a row. Um, and that we we need to get back to a pretty good run, a decent run in the U-17s. Um, we had a decent run in the U-20s. We need to make sure that we're focused on those ages, and I think that we are. I think the Federation is. But I think we put uh, 23s and, uh, and qualifying for the Olympics. And we've got a lot of young, talented players that should be capable of achieving that. I think that um, this, you know, anyway, could have a silver lining in that it might give us an opportunity to give those players a lot more international experience. Great. Well, Kevin, it's all been really enlightening stuff. I don't, I don't want to take up any more of your time. You've got a, got a, got a bunch of important things you need to do, I'm sure. Um, once again, Kevin Payne is the CEO of US Club Soccer and a founding father of Major League Soccer. Kevin, thanks again. Okay. Thanks very much, Luke.